Well, today we're going to look at what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. What is the heart? What's that? What happens in the heart? Well, many different ways to look at the heart, but the heart is really the command center, the executive center of our being. It's the place where we make decisions. We make choices between alternatives. God has given us this amazing ability to imagine something and then exercise a choice and to bring it into being, this executive center that we have at the core of our being. The problem is uh, we don't simply have an innocent or neutral heart. We are not Rousseau's tabula rasa. We are not simply a clean slate, neither tilting towards good or evil. No, we've got a heart problem. And sadly, our wills are fallen, and therefore they are inclined to rebel against God's authority and to go against God's goodness. And if we're to love God with all of our heart, we must first of all deal with this penchant that we have uh, to have a, as the scripture says, a a hardened heart, a heart of stone, or a a heart that is is stiff-necked, that resists the loving advances of God. And so if we're to love God and give him our full affection, there's something that has to change in our heart in order for that to happen. So I want to begin this journey this month on this fundamental point. And quite frankly, if we don't get this first point, don't come back the rest of the month. Okay? Uh, because it's all about the heart change that is necessary in order for us to even think about loving God with our soul and mind and our strength. And that heart change is that we have to have a broken and contrite heart. That's the beginning of the journey. Now, Scripture tells us that there's actually a heart condition to which God is drawn. There is the state of the heart to which God magnetically comes to. And it's that state of heart that God says this big God is drawn to the most humble of hearts the smallest of hearts. Tonight I want to just introduce this with a couple of references from Isaiah, and then we're going to look at uh, at King David as sort of the epitome of the one who had a broken and contrite heart. But notice this, big God drawn to small heart. That's where he resides. That's where he is attracted to. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they are coming into being, declares the Lord? Big God. These are the ones I look on favor. Those who humble and a contrite heart and tremble at my word. And then Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, big God. But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now I think the biblical character that most epitomizes the broken and contrite heart. And the one that we can learn the most from I think is King David. We read from his Psalm 51 verse 17, his own personal experience of a broken heart. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. 
Well, how did David come to have a broken and contrite heart? Unfortunately, it came out of a moral failure in his life, a moral tragedy. And David records this in some detail in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, where he he describes these psalms of confession against the backdrop of this moral tragedy. And his story is told, frankly, in very excruciating detail in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And I want to retell this story uh, to you in some brief form because it sets the backdrop uh, for the lessons we want to learn about the characteristics of a broken and contrite heart. The scripture says that it was in the spring of the year when the kings go off to war. But this particular spring, David did not go off to war. He sent his armies under the command of Joab. And having some idle time, which we know is the devil's playground, uh, David one evening was standing on his rooftops and uh, he looked down and he saw a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. And abusing his power, he had her brought to him, forced his wishes upon her, and took her for himself. Well, in a very short period of time, the message came back from Bathsheba that she was pregnant. And the cover-up began. The avalanche of treachery started. And so David, attempting to hide what he has done, thinks, well, I'll, I'll bring Uriah, her husband, back from the front lines of battle. He's out there with my commander Joab. I'll send him in to his wife. Um, he will think that this is his child, and he will be none the wiser. But what does Uriah do? He refuses to go in and enjoy the pleasures of his own home. In fact, Uriah says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David must have felt shamed by the loyalty that Uriah was showing to him and uh, to his fellow comrades out in the field. So David has to uh, put plan B into effect. And plan B is to send Uriah back to the front lines giving him a sealed notice to give to Joab, which is in fact his death warrant. And the death warrant reads, put Uriah out into the thickest of battle, and when the the enemy is coming down upon him, have his fellow soldiers step away, leave Uriah exposed, and have him killed in battle. That's David's way of dealing with his deed. Sir Walter Scott once wrote, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. And I think David certainly illustrates this point. In a very short point of time, David went from abusing his power to taking a woman for himself, plotting murder, bringing accessories into help, and even implicating them in his deeds. And this is the man of whom God said, The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. After all of that, how could that possibly be the statement that David is the man after God's own heart? Well, I think it's David's inflicted pain that brought him to a place of a broken and contrite heart. We know from reading Psalm 32 that uh, 
Following this deed, David was in a psychological and spiritual state of depression. You see, he had a finely tuned conscience, and he knew that he was living in contrary to what God expected of him. And so for almost a year following these horrendous deeds, it says that David went into kind of this, this funk. David put it in his own words in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David was a man haunted by guilt, sapped of energy, because he was living with the discrepancy between what he knew was right and his depraved behavior. As someone has observed, you can't go against the grain of the universe without getting splinters. And it was at this time then that the Lord set a trap for David. David or the Lord informed Nathan, the prophet, of what David had done. And so Nathan comes to David and tells him a story, a story about a rich man and a poor man. Rich man had cattle as far as you could see, but the poor man had one little pressured, cherished possession, this little ewe lamb that had become a part of the family and, and kind of a beloved pet. The rich man had a visitor come from out of town, and he wanted to shower this visitor certainly with a big banquet. But instead of taking some of his own cattle, flock, diminishing his own resources, he took the little ewe lamb of the poor man, had it dressed and killed and fed to his visitor. Well, David uh, takes the bait. David seizes with righteous indignation over what this rich man has done. And then Nathan pausing for the right dramatic moment, says, you are the man. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? You struck Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. And that moment, David had no place to hide. He was caught red-handed. He was exposed. There was no way out. And perhaps there was even some sense of relief that he had been caught. Because David's response to being caught is to say, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. No justification. In fact, David writes in Psalm 32, verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I think it's in this light that David became the man after God's own heart. This was his defining moment. This was his turning point where he came face to face with what he was capable of. And began to experience that broken and contite heart that says, this is the man after God's own heart. And I think we're oftentimes like David. We bring the hurts upon ourselves that lead us to that place where we have the broken and contrite heart. So I want to consider with you, what are some of the characteristics that we see in David, that we can see in ourselves of what a broken and contrite heart looks like. 
First one is this. A person with a broken heart has given up the pretense of pretended goodness. Given up the pretense of pretended goodness. I think David finally had the privilege, and I use this language uh, carefully, to frankly see the extent of his evil, to see what he was capable of, to see that he could violate his most cherished principles. If the prophet Nathan, I think, had come to him ahead of time and said, you know, there's going to be a a temptation that comes to you uh, through this woman Bathsheba, and warned him ahead of time, what do you think David would have said? No way. Can't imagine myself walking down that road, committing adultery and then covering it up with a murder. That's not me. That's not the kind of person that I am. Won't happen. Well, to have a broken heart is to be stripped of any false notion of our capacity for sin. Tending to judge ourselves on the basis of the bad deeds that we have avoided, we probably carry around maybe a subtle pride that says, I've never done those kinds of things that David did. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty decent individual. But what if we measured ourselves against missed opportunities? In Christian tradition, we have tended to divide sin into two categories. Sins of commission and sins of omission. And it may be the sins of omission, frankly, that is a greater insight into the state of our hearts than the sins of commission. The things that we haven't done. The things that, opportunities that we have failed to take advantage of. Just think of young kids in the continent of Africa today, many orphans because of the HIV AIDS crisis that are there, who are barely scratching out a living, being raised by older siblings because parents have died, grandparents have died, going to bed hungry at night. But most of us will hit the pillow tonight and feel quite comfortable without a thought about those people that have are in that state of mind, state of life. What's that say about us? That we know that there are others who are suffering when we are well fed and don't do a whole lot about it or feel that strongly about it. What does that say about our our spirits? Perhaps one of the most difficult things to do is to take an accurate assessment of ourselves. We tend to see ourselves in the, the best possible light. Let me, let me give you a personal illustration of this. Uh, in my high school and college years, I played some competitive tennis. And I was a so-so tennis player, won some, lost some. But about every tenth time, I would go out in the tennis court, and I was invincible. I mean, I hit every line, picked the sh- ball off my shoe tops. So who was the real tennis player? that won every tenth time, or the one that won some and lost some? Of course it was that one every tenth time. That's what I saw myself as. Was that accurate? No. I was a mediocre tennis player. How hard it is to look at the state of our soul. Yehiel Denur's story serves as a window into every man's heart. Yehiel Denor was a witness at the trial of Adolf Eichmann following the World War II crimes. He was known as the butcher of the Jews during World War II. The courtroom was hushed when Denor entered because he was going to give testimony against Eichmann. And he stared at Eichmann behind the bulletproof clear glass. And then all of a sudden, dramatically, 
Denur began to sob, and, and he fell on the ground. And everyone assumed that Denur was reliving the horrors of the gas chambers, reliving those horrors of the concentration camp. But later he explained that that was not it at all. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. And then with chilling clarity, Denur said, Eichmann is in all of us. Do we truly know what we are capable of under certain circumstances? I shudder to think. David was beginning to be free because he could write, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It seems that God's storehouse of mercy pours out, moves towards us when we just come clean about what we are. That's what was happening to David. The second characteristic of a broken and contrite heart is that there is no room for self-righteous judgment. And I don't think anyone has clearly and more succinctly defined the distinction between a proud heart and a humble heart than the great preacher, theologian, thinker of the great awakening, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Mid-1700s, he wrote these words. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. Whereas a humble saint is most jealous of himself, he is so suspicious of nothing in all the world as he is of his own heart. The spiritually proud person is apt to find fault with other saints, that they are low in grace. To be much in observance of how cold and dead they are and be quick to discern and take notice of their deficiencies. And then I love this line. But the eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. I got so much work to do here, why should I be spending my time trying to find out what's wrong with you and then judging you and condemning you for that? The humble person realizes how much there is to do at home. And so David puts it this way, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Me, my focus is on himself because he's aware of how far he has fallen. But this leads us to the third characteristic. Those whose hearts have been broken are eminently teachable. Now David's heart is pliable and moldable. That heart of stone has been replaced by a heart of flesh. And so we read in Psalm 51, verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Let me ask you, are your hearts or my heart eager for truth? Do we want to know the truth about ourselves? Have you asked, ever asked somebody for feedback after a presentation or, uh, after, or asked them about the way you come across? And then the response of the person you're acquiring says to you, well, do you want to know the truth or should I lie and make you feel good? And everything in us says what? lie and make me feel good. 
And then you think about it and you say, well, maybe I do need to know the truth. Perhaps it's because of David's raw encounter with the, his capacity for evil that he was able to ask the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive or wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, the broken and contrite heart cultivates a confessing spirit. It says, Lord, I want to see you, see me through your eyes. In fact, the word confession out of the Latin root is to agree with God. To pray, Lord, let me see me as you see me. Because when we do, it doesn't leave us in condemnation. It leads us to mercy. And so David can say, blessed, happy is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. David has experienced a restoration of joy because he knew that God's heart is drawn to those who come clean. And then this leads us to our last characteristic of a humble and contrite heart. And again, we come back to paradox. God never seems to be more pleased with us than we, when we acknowledge our greatest need of him. God never seems to be more pleased with us than when we acknowledge our greatest need of him. David writes Psalm 32 and 51 as a liberated person. He's experiencing the new life of forgiveness. He's experiencing that as he comes clean before God, God's mercy moves towards him. So we read in Psalm 32.1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And then in Psalm 51, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Restore the joy of my salvation. In David's dialogue with Nathan, as soon as David said, I have sinned against the Lord, what were the next words out of Nathan's mouth? You're going to burn in hell. No. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Of course, there were consequences to that sin. But David was no longer an enemy running from God but a father into whose arms he could run himself. It's a wondrous thing that the unfarnished repentance leads to an open-hearted welcome. Let me close with uh, this story that Max Lucado tells. It originates in the country of Brazil. Maria had raised her daughter Christina since Christina was a baby after the death of her husband. Scratching out a living as a maid, uh, Maria provided a loving home for Christina. But Christina was a very independent spirit. She couldn't imagine marrying a young man in her rural village and then settling down to raise a family there. The big city beckoned. The bright lights were out there. The excitement of Rio just kind of drew her that direction. Maria had warned Christina that, uh, about the life that awaited her there. Jobs were scarce. Uh, she knew the kind of living that she would have to enter into to survive in the big city. And so Maria constantly warned her about that. But one morning, Maria got up and Christina was gone. She knew that Christina had headed to the city. 
So Maria gathered up a few of her belongings, all the money that she had, uh, to go chase Christina down in the city. Before she left town, though, she stopped by one of those cheap photo booths and took some pictures of herself. And knowing that her daughter was too proud to give up, Maria began to search for Christina in bars and hotels and nightclubs, the places where prostitutes operated. And every place she went, she left her picture on a bathroom mirror, hotel bulletin board, phone booth. And on the back of each picture, she wrote a little note. And when her money had run out and no daughter was found, Maria had to return home. Well, a few weeks later, a very tired Christina walked down a flight of hotel stairs. Her eyes spoke of the pain and fear that had gone on, that her dream had now become a nightmare. And when she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes spotted a familiar face. For there on the lobby mirror was a black and white photo of her mother. She removed the picture and turned it over to read these words. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. That may be an invitation for you, for some of you. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, God says, please come home. Because he's never more pleased with us than when we are in great need of him and express that need. So the broken heart in whom God finds that he can occupy us, dwell in us most richly, is that heart that recognizes our sinful capacity, has given up the moral high ground of judgment, is seeking to live in truth, and lives in the joy of the Father's delight. That big God loves to find residence in our unworthy hearts when we make that recognition before him. If we get that right, then we can go on to what does it mean to love God with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Let's pray together. Our Father, help us to see ourselves, to see all that we are capable of or incapable of, not so that we writhe in pain, but so that we can see and feel and sense your mercy. Break our hearts, Lord, we pray. May we have that sense of contrition over our sins of commission, especially our sins of omission. And when that happens, Lord, we know that you do not leave us alone, but you come and occupy space within us. We thank you for it. In your name, amen.